Hi, Brandon. Hi, Spike. Hi. How's it going? It is going great. And listen, I put some thought into this. I think you all will get along. Awesome. I love getting along. I like people sometimes. Thank you, and everyone, welcome to I Think You Two Would Get Along. It is the podcast that comes out of the Kickstarter Games team. I am so excited to talk about this. Before we talk about anything at all, I want to make sure that our audience is on the same page as best as we can get them before we start. Every one of our guests today, including our uh, lovely co-host from Kickstarter, uh, Yatasha Womack, is familiar with and or currently working on a Afropunk, Afrofuturist type work. And um, Yatasha, if you could real quick before we start, um, give us a quick definition of, of what that means and what you should expect to see from a piece that talks about that kind of thing. Sure. Well, I wrote a book called Afrofuturism, The World of Black Sci-Fi and Fantasy Culture. And Afrofuturism is a way of looking at the future or alternate realities, but through a black cultural lens. And when I say black cultural lens, I'm referring to people of the African continent, people in the diaspora. It is an artistic aesthetic, but it's also an epistemology, and it can be used for just health, self-healing, community healing. It intersects the imagination and liberation, mysticism, and it and technology, and I think embraces the intuition as being a valid way of as valid as looking at logic. It celebrates the divine feminine. It is very much sees technology and mysticism as flip sides of the same coin and often sees time, the future, past, and present as one. You see that in a lot of the aesthetic. But I, I, I'm just, I just think it's just a great way to look at the imagination and how the imagination has just changed lives and, and been just a great resilience tool for people. We are going to introduce two vibrant industry personalities to one another and see if they can become friends in, let's say, 45 minutes or less. Uh, today, I've got Brandon Dixon and I got Spike Trotman as well. Brandon, let's start with you. I'm Brandon, Brandon Dixon. I'm the writer and creator of Swordsfall. And our first project is this Welcome to Tycor, and it's a setting and art book. The world is an Afropunk sci fantasy setting. So this book will let you read about the world, all the stuff that's in it, and I have a couple of great artists to illustrate the whole thing to life. Uh, Spike, you are no stranger to Kickstarter, <laughs> and uh, no. you are not a games person, but I think you would be an amazing games person. Oh, I'd love to write for games one day, but yeah, I'm primarily a comics person. The piece of yours that made me really think to invite you to talk to Brandon was um, when you edited FTL, y'all. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that, or do you have a current Kickstarter project up? Honestly, I never know when you have one up because you always have one up. <laughs> yeah, I don't have one up right this second, but we are planning our our next one right now it's just a matter of which project is ready to go first before right. we like make it official but as of recording uh we're about 20 for 20 kickstarters uh we've launched 20 and we funded 20 they have all except for one been for comic books or art books we've raised a total of 1.3 million on kickstarter for comics or art books and I was an early adopter of Kickstarter. I launched my first project in 2009 when the when the site itself launched. And Whoa, 
I didn't even yeah. know that. <laughs> yeah, I launched my first um, comics Kickstarter before Kickstarter had a comics category. So I've been around for a while and I've used it as an incredibly important element of like building Iron Circus Comics, which is my publishing company, up from sort of, uh, I wouldn't really call it boutique, more of a self-publishing imprint all the way up to sort of the small mid-level publishing thing it is now. It's the largest comics publisher in Chicago. It publishes 10 to 12 books, graphic novels yearly. It's distributed internationally and it's my full-time job. Oh, that is so good. You're such a badass. Like, honestly. <laughs> Hi, friend. Oh, thank you. You're friends. so kind. But yeah, FTL, y'all, was, um, it was a project that I knew I had to do when I first heard the concept because it was so interesting and exciting to me. My husband is very much into role-playing games and on a role-playing forum that he frequented, there was a thread that was just called FTL y'all. And what it was, was inspired by a series of novels. And one of them was called the getaway express. And I, I forget the, the author's name. I'm, I'm immensely sorry, but if you look up the, I'm sorry, the getaway special, if you look up the getaway special, you'll, you'll find the author's name. And it's about a world where people have figured out how to build a faster than light engine for $200. And it's something that anyone with like middling mechanical ability can put together over the course of a weekend. So space travel, instead of being this domain of governments and elite scientists and pilots, it's suddenly instantly and chaotically democratized. Pretty oh, much anyone it. can fl go faster than light now. And I was really interested in what the world would look like, what the universe would look like if you could just like, no, the hell with this, I'm gone. And next thing you know, you're on Mars. And we also uh, are so pleased uh, to have a, really my Kickstarter colleague, because creator in residence, uh, uh, Yatasha Womack here in the uh, uh, the studio today. Yatasha, I'm like, I'm so stoked. You're so much cooler than me. You are uh, a dance therapist. You are a writer. Like, tell me about you. Yes. You know, I think I'm all encompassing creative. Um, but at my core, I'm a writer and also a dancer. Um, and also, no, just kidding. No, but really, uh, I write about Afrofuturism. And the experience of writing that nonfiction book really opened me up to do more storytelling in the world of, of sci-fi. And I think it's just the fact that in Afrofuturism, you get to bridge uh, the imagination and technology and mysticism and you have the divine feminine and you have all this, um, you can really play with time in some really fun ways. It opened me up to be more of myself and to do storytelling through that lens and to really use dance as a way to bridge time and space and use the body in an interdimensional cool way and so I, I just I'm super happy about just the ability to explore yourself yeah. in the genre. Let's talk about um, let's talk about Afrofuturism. Let's talk about Afropunk. Let's talk about all these things. Um, so the way that we do the podcast um, is we start with small talk because we want everybody to kind of get to know each other. Um, and uh, and also for the Internet nerds out there, I want them to know when they meet someone for the first time, you don't launch into your life story. You ask like little simple questions. So uh, so let's go through some just quick small talk questions, get to know each other a little bit. Uh, and then um, I would love to go and take a deep dive into this topic. Uh, and uh, Yatasha, um, I'm particularly happy that you're here because you're taking the place of my co-host, Luke Crane, who is also on the games team at Kickstarter. And I know how to keep a conversation going. I know how to make people feel comfortable. But you have a knowledge of, of what we want to talk about. Um, and I am stoked that you are here. So, And I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Me too. 
<laughs> Hi, Brandon. <laughs> like, can, can I just say, like, yes. I didn't realize that Tasha was going to be here. I have your book. I'm a big fan. I follow you on Twitter. So oh. I'm like kind of just sitting there going like, oh, my God, I wasn't prepared. I, I really feel that about all three of you. And when Natasha walked in, my face has just gotten slowly, progressively, like more warm and red because I'm like, oh, my gosh. All three of them. <laughs> this is so great. You all are great. And I have to give a shout out to, to Spike, too, for oh. holding it down. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're so kind. Oh, did the two of you know each other? Oh, no, I don't think no. so. Okay, well, maybe by the end of this podcast, Michelle. <laughs> uh, so I have a list of some things that they, they being just like the internet or goop or a doctor, uh, say that you should do every day. Um, so little things that almost nobody does every day. And I want to see if, if everybody here does these things daily, because I certainly do not. So first on the list, eat breakfast. No. Always. Really? Always? Always. How do you how do you get yourself into the mode? Because I am on spike side. Like I roll out of bed and I'm like, food, what? Human person? I'm a creature that needs things to live. I don't understand. Are we counting coffee as breakfast? Because if we're no. just counting coffee, then yes, I do have breakfast. But if no. we need if 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 solids are a requirement, like then no. What? That coffee can't counts. count. Coffee counts. But does co- coffee doesn't have any calories in it? I have an addiction. It's it's addiction. <laughs> it, it's it's addiction maintenance. It's not sustenance. Natasha, I feel like you know what you're talking about when you say like, yeah, I eat breakfast every day. You goobs, what's going on? How do you make it happen? I have egg whites every Ooh. day and then tea. See, you're a dancer. You have a you have an understanding of your physical form, and we're just nerds on the internet, disembodied yeah. from our entire bodies. <laughs> it must be nice to respect your physical form. Yeah. It, it it helps a push up or sit up on occasion. <laughs> I do wonder though, does today count when you say every day? Because if today counted, then no, I did not eat breakfast today. Well, today I can't possibly count because you're just coming off of C2E2 um, a Thank you. convention here in Chicago. Whatever you need to do to get through the day is totally acceptable. Do you yeah. need three different lunches? Fine. Do you need zero <laughs> breakfast? Also okay. All right. Yeah. Then air and a protein bar. That's uh, what yeah. we're running on right now post-con. Con recovery days do not count. They're not real days. You, you can do anything on con recovery days. They, when someone asks you any sort of question, no con recovery day action is applicable. I literally don't have to go through this list of daily stuff. In fact, I would love it if we talked about recovering from conventions. I, like, oh, I think God. all of us live the con life, right? I would Unfortunately say so. so. Used to. I haven't lately, but... I, I like cons, that. though. Yeah. Um, I have been doing cons for like... Gosh, I don't even know. I think 20, 25 years, something like that. And this year we have graduated in, into what I would have once considered the most obscene luxury, which is I don't actually table at a lot of the cons Iron Circuses is at. Uh, this year and 2018 have been kind of the years where I have come to accept that Iron Circus isn't like just me as a person anymore. So when I talk Mm -hmm. about how Iron Circus will do this, Iron Circus will do that, Iron Circus will be here, there, wherever, that doesn't necessarily mean I will be there. For example, Iron Circus was at Emerald City Comic Con last week, and I was not there. And then it was at C2E2 this week, and I was there. And then in two weeks, it's going to be at MoCA in New York City, and I will not be there. And 
I used to do a ton of cons. I'm like 15, 20 a year because that was a major source of income for me. But as Iron Circus has kind of grown and matured and distribution outlets and opportunities for different income streams have prevented them, excuse me, have presented themselves. Suddenly, you know, the one or two grand I might make at a con is a whole lot less important and a whole lot less vital to my well-being. Yeah, yeah. You get, it's all about the balance, I'm sure. Yeah. Natasha, you were saying you love cons. Um, how many conventions have you been to as, as a writer now? Oh, it's interesting. Um, well, not as many as Spike, uh, but I've been <laughs> going for probably about five or six years now. Oh, wow. So you're pretty deep into it now. <laughs> yeah. And the very first one I went to was actually C2E2. And I, I moderated a panel and I threw an after party. Ooh. Ooh. And that was that was pretty fun. See, that sounds fun. I did a panel after party. I was my first and my last, but I, I think I should resurrect the, the panel after party. So was it um, the audience from the panel was invited to a second location? How did you make that happen? Yeah, pretty much. It was I did a digital version of my Rayla book. It was kind of the first incarnation of the, the teleporting series. And I, yeah, I just I rented out a, a place. Uh, it was the Silver Room. We were in Milwaukee at the time and just put together like all these super cool images. We were really celebrating uh, different creators of color. Uh, the panel had to dealt with diversity. And so it was like, hey, everyone, you know, when you're done, let's all come celebrate. And I think people were excited because they got to see their work. There were a lot of indie creators there and they got to see their work like projected onto screens. And it was kind of a, you know, bit of a drink tasting. And I think they were shocked to feel appreciated. I mean, because this is all pre-Black Panther, of course, right? So, um, you know, I think for a lot of people, it was still felt very much like a grind trying to get their voice out. Oh, God. I'm very familiar with the grind. <laughs> uh, but for con, con uh, getting yourself uh, back to health uh, and getting yourself back into, into the groove, how do you recover? Well, ideally what you should do, which is not in totality what I did, <laughs> um, I think what you should do is try to just take a little moment for yourself. If you can light a candle, drink tea, uh, just take an hour to to relax. And then I think you, if possible, you should plan several hours of doing nothing. I think it's a really necessary transformation before you get into like a detox mode. I don't know if I call myself a vet, but I've been going a long time. Like usually on the anime and gaming side, I would I used to run like the like the Otakon scene when that was like still the big thing, and like a few other like Midwest cons. And uh, I actually ran two of my own when I used to live in um, Arkansas. I ran two game cons, so I'm pretty familiar with it. It's just Ow. over the years, I kind of you kind of like it's easy to fall out of it, you know. Like it's like when you're doing the circuit, it's easy, but if you stop, it's kind of like exercise. You stop, and you're like ah. I missed this one. I'll go to the next one. I'll go to oh, the yeah. next one. I'll go yeah. to the next one. And then it's like 10 years later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I've been doing comics, like I said, for a couple of decades, like comic conventions. And it's been startling watching them transform from what I was used to when I first started going to what they are now. And I'm talking pretty much on every level from the amount of money that's just walking around and the kind of thing that qualifies as like a big deal for a comic convention all the way up to the demographics. And one of the things I'm, I'm fond of telling people is I 
I remember when I first started doing comic conventions, I was the only black woman in the building. And now I'm not even the only one behind a table. And that's in that's an incredible relief to see. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. Man. Like, I mean, I I am a white person. And like, I was always like, oh, finally, the line in the ladies room is a little bit longer now. Like, that feels <laughs> so good just to see, you know, like, um, I can't I can't imagine how it must feel to see people in places of, of power. Finally. Oh, yeah. um, so like, so there has been eh, screw this, this section small talk. You guys want to talk about games and comics. And oh, art. Yeah. let's do it. <laughs> It's so interesting how all three of you are creatives in many different ways. Brandon, I didn't know that you were also a convention organizer, which is like an enormous skill set that's very difficult to learn, in my opinion. How did you get into that? And um, how did you, as an organizer, uh, try to encourage uh, new creators and creators of marginalized backgrounds to the forefront? I know that's kind of an enormous question with several <laughs> parts. So, like, take your time with it. So, I guess the first thing you have to know about me is I have that kind of mentality of, I'm not usually one to sit around and do nothing. Like if something needs to happen and no one else is doing it, I very much have the, oh, I'll do it. And that's kind of how I got into doing cons because I lived in Arkansas at the time. And this was like 2010. And there was pretty much no cons in that state. There was like one anime con that was like 100 miles away. There was really nothing going on where I was. And... I at first was just kind of like, hey, like it would be really cool if someone did this here and trying to get other people to do it. And I don't know if other creators come across this, but you come to a moment where you realize that you're the one who has the best idea and the most drive to do it. So yep. you should probably just do it. Relatable. And <laughs> so I was like, cool, I'll just start it up. And uh, I kind of ad hoced it all, honestly. Uh, there's something about hustle. Like hustle gets you really far. Oh my God, we're here. We're here. You and me, we're here. The second, Brandon, the second you said, you know, you should probably just do it. I was like, ah, that is Spike's like entire life in mantra, I feel like right there. <laughs> yeah. And and, that, and that's why Swordsfall exists. It's the same thing. You know, I wanted to see, you know, more black faces at, at the gaming table and there just wasn't a lot of games out there. So it was just kind of, oh, okay. I'll do it. Yeah. You know? I really can I just say I I really identify with that because one of the things that sort of instructs a lot of the choices that I make when I'm sitting there and I have my editor hat on and I'm deciding, okay, which of these ideas gets to become a book. One of the things I always think about is this fictional 12 year old black girl who is in the library and she's walking up and down the aisles. And, you know, since she's a 12 year old girl in this year, she is looking at the comics and um, the section she's looking for. She's just like scanning for what she should read next. And, you know, what do I want her to stop at? What what do I think would make her stop in her tracks and maybe even back up a couple of steps? And that's informed like what goes on the cover of FTL y'all. And that informed what, what went on, um, what like my choice to publish as the crow flies and what went on the cover of uh, the collection of fairy tales. I put together the girl who married a skull because I didn't just want that sort of, and here's the one black girl story. I wanted the, and here is the super cool black girl with the purple Senegalese twists and the tattoos and the t-shirt that says pale blue thought. And then here's sort of the, the queer 13 year old questioning black girl. Who's the only black girl at the all white Christian summer camp for girls. And here's the fairy tale black girl. Who's, 
you know, kind of a preppy and kind of superficial and shallow who just marries the cutest guy she finds. And oops, turns out the cutest guy that she found is actually a monster in disguise. And oh no, Mm. what does that mean? It's like, I want that fictional 12-year-old black girl to have all the protagonists, not just the one that's for her. Well, you know, you know, the, the white kid in the comic section gets to choose from any manner of protagonist. I want all the protagonists for that black girl. And that's why a lot of what I publish makes it to the shelves. So I, I totally get you with that whole, well, I have to do this. I have to make those available to that fictional child somewhere. And it's a weird thing. Cause you kind of realize that like, that's kind of what separates the, like the, the creators from like the people who just kind of like, it'd be a good idea. It's just that part of you that, Mm-hmm. is so hell-bent on it that you're like, someone has to do this. Why isn't someone doing this? And then you find yourself doing it, you know? And it's immensely satisfying. And the bit about, like, when we were talking, like, this whole, ostensibly, like, the whole thing about this podcast is sort of, like, Afrofuturism. And one of the things that has been, like, burning in my breast that I'm dying to mention on the same sort of on the same sort of subject is I have wished so hard that Many Moons was something that was available to 12-year-old me. And that was Janelle Monet's. It was one of her first videos. And it's just like, it's Afro, Afrofuturism in miniature. It's just like five or seven minutes long. But it's perfect. And she's perfect. And the song is perfect. And the visuals are perfect. And it's, I could tell that if that had premiered when I was 12, I would have been one of those incredibly gross slobbering fans <laughs> you know i would have been one of those girls that couldn't talk about her without actually crying because i would i would have felt it that much i have a dust my shoulders off moment about janelle monet oh. i would like to share yes so please share yeah well, i had an opportunity to interview her and I was actually asked to put together a Afrofuturist playlist co-curated with Janelle Monet. Oh, my God. And I got to pick a bunch of songs, and she got to pick a bunch of songs. And it's on Spotify. And I'm just like, I was like, I think this is cool. Oh, man. I'm very happy to be on a call with three people who are all equally freaking out about Janelle Monae. (laughs) It's hard not to. She's perfect. She's so perfect. Okay. Okay. Taking a deep breath. Oh, my God. So I have such Janelle Monae feelings because she – so I'm bisexual and she really recently came out as as pansexual. And it was such an important thing for me, especially with um, Dirty Computer being – like thinking Mm -hmm. about her queerness and and also like the – you know what i'm gonna stop talking (laughs) i totally get it though i totally get it i totally get it i'm gonna transition this to an actual question so you guys can talk um so uh, i had read an esquire uh interview with janelle monet that was such a it's just a beautiful um uh like joyous uh conversation about her life and how what she is became uh what she put into her music um and she talked a bit about representation um, when you all started, uh, just the very first time you started dabbling with Afropunk, Afrofuturism, um, was that an exercise of wanting to see more representation or was this a part of yourself that you wanted to express? Like, where does that, that need come from um, and what made you start participating in that scene? And Yeah, I was an Afrofuturist before I knew I was an Afrofuturist. Mm. So growing up, I was really into science. And I wanted to be a paleontologist and 
anthropologist for a good chunk of my childhood, but I was also really into history and read a lot of biographies. My claim to fame was that I read all the biographies at the Woodson Library in Chicago uh, in the kids section. (laughs) (laughs) I love I love libraries. Um, But in that, you know, it became obvious that they were missing histories. And, you know, between and so I would really deep dive and write reading about these missing histories. Uh, often, you know, regarding people of color, it was harder to find a lot of fantasy or even mythology, really, around people of African descent. And that was obvious to me. But uh, I think somewhere between the reading of the history, looking at space, loving to dance and watching The Wiz like every day of my life. Oh, wow. That, you know, I was kind of pre-prepped into being this Afrofuturist. And so by the time I attended Clark Atlanta University, everybody on the campus was super deep into talking about quantum physics and looking at activism and talking about the technological contributions people of African descent had made to just, you know, the world and the perspectives around the future and trying to see how they could use that to transform their lives. They were dissecting hip-hop lyrics and, you know, they're looking at house music and just trying to pull from all elements of culture to really inspire people. And that's what we did all the time. And in retrospect, I do remember reading this critical essay by Mark Derry called Black to the Future, where Afrofuturism was first used, but it didn't really stick with me. And when I graduated, uh, I kept meeting people who were quote-unquote Afrofuturists, not using that term. And so, you know, I, I just knew a lot of musicians, artists, et cetera. So by the time I heard the term, I was wondering why hadn't I heard the term? Well, especially because wow. I was point. writing like, about culture and music and planet, art and covering, you know, black culture pretty intensely. I said, I've never heard this term Afrofuturism. And I know people who feel alone. They don't feel like they're part of community. Even if they went to a college or a place where people were really into it, you know, as they matured, it's like, where do you go? What do you do if you're not an artist? They didn't know you could be an Afrofuturist theorist. And so I said, you know, I want to write a book about this because I think it would help people understand that not only are they part of a community now, but they're part of a larger trajectory of people in the past and people into the future who are working with transformation and change and and contributing to how you use the imagination to change your circumstances. That's incredible. And I love the uh, the recognition and the understanding of, you know, Absolutely. Uh, we are adding ourselves back in to the history that we were cut yeah. out of. I say we yeah. as you, but you know what I mean. Well, but it's a human history, right? Yeah, and 100%. So, and that's, that's really it, you know, that the perspectives that come out of Afrofuturism are really there to help and all of us as a human family understand who we are so that we can rebuild and grow. Well, oh, like Afrofuturism, Afropunk is obviously like important to, to black people and people of color. I think that white people don't truly understand how important this stuff is for them as well. Like when you only have one view, one narrative, it kind of strips you of your own ability to be curious and to open yourself up to new principles, you know? So having this stuff out there kind of helps round it out for everybody. So like one of the things that I've noticed about Swordsfall is I, I kind of assumed that 
not necessarily that like white guys would pull away from it, but I figured it would be a slightly harder sell when I was making it quite clear as this was like a a, a pseudo black journey. And I was going to have a ton of black faces and a, and a ton of women, and it was going to be non-binary, like all the things that normally you know that that demographic tends to shirk from. And then when I started talking about it and I started presenting to it, who's my number one fans right now? Like white guys love Swordsfall. And it's not because they don't understand what it is. They very much know what it is and they straight out say it. They're like, I'm so glad to see someone come out with black faces. And I've had people like DM me and be like, I'm so glad that someone was like willing to put women on a cover because I don't really know how to ask for it, but I know how to support it, you know? So, so there's a lot of, there's some voices in there that I think aren't, can't speak but they can follow like i don't want to make say that in a bad way you know but like they can see a message and they can get behind that i don't know how to ask for it but i know how to support it is that is a sentiment that i have heard sort of repeated over the course of my publishing history where the stuff that i've put out have been things that people have wanted but they're not necessarily equipped to make it happen themselves and i've always had that philosophy where it's like well you know if I don't do this, it's not going to get done. And for a long time, Iron Circus was, uh, I guess the best way to describe it was it was it was too small to fail. So I, I was never really afraid to try something that somebody wouldn't necessarily, someone say at Random House, not that, you know, I'm judging them or anything, but someone at Penguin Random House or someone at Scholastic maybe wouldn't take a risk on. So when I'm publishing books and there are books about, uh, a queer woman who moves to Minneapolis because she really wants to work in an insect restaurant. And she also wants to woo her the cute neighbor girl with mealworm stir fry or something, or that one's called meal. It's really good. Or, uh, you know, another book and it's <laughs> a book about like, like I said, as the crow flies, which is probably my, my biggest book of 2018, which is about a girl named Charlie. And she's dropped off at this all white summer camp. That is ostensibly about, celebrating sort of women womanness through the lens of christianity and you know trying to sort of marry second wave feminism with with, uh worship and when this sort of approach to it it's like the people who are who are hosting the camp they mean well but when when the history of this tradition is really interrogated it's something that was extremely exclusionary of black women especially because this retreat you know with with air quotes there this was something that people of privilege exclusively could enjoy and black women weren't part of it and they're they're added in retrospect but not in like the history of their exclusion isn't acknowledged in any way and that exclusion is being repeated in the book right now in the present day by the women running the camp who don't want trans campers at their women's summit for for teenage girls and so that's that's like the kind of thing that I, I want to see on the shelves and I want people to have access to these stories that aren't being told in the mainstream because a lot of larger publishers are very risk averse, I guess is the best way to put it. And they don't understand it. And they're cowards. And they're cowards and they're cowards. And they don't want to print these books and have to answer for it in, you know, the middle of nowhere America where someone is angry at the librarian for even having it in stock. And like, I, I could give a crap what someone says to a librarian somewhere, you know, you're not going to threaten me. As it stands. And and I feel like this is echoing things that all three of you have said. It's almost like history as it's told right now is a lie due to all of these om- omissions. Absolutely. 
So there's a great quote that I love from Africa, um, and it goes, the history of the lion will never be told until he can learn to write his own book. You know, yeah. like huh. there's there's definitely very much uh, history is always written by who gets to win. And yeah. just literally by the process of how history has been, we know who has won. So therefore, we know who has written the history. Yeah. So it's this weird trap where like and and for me, like I have this weird history where um, I'm actually like a pseudo Chicago native. I won't say Chicago. I was born <laughs> in uh, Bolingbrook. You know, but oh, I feel yeah, like that's just close enough. I can be like eh, 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 Chicagoan. Wait, are all four of us Chicago people? Well, I'm a Southsider, so Bolingbrook, <laughs> you could throw a rock and <laughs> See? maybe yeah. hit it. Maybe. maybe just kidding. Sort of, you know, you can, you can claim it. I don't mind. <laughs> I've lived in Chicago since um, 2001, but I, I was I was born in the D.C. suburbs. So not quite. I've been here a long time. I've been here about. 20 years but not a native I still rep the bears people make fun of me i'm like I'm like the bears are like they're awful and i'm like it doesn't matter it's just like it's not the point. for me all the childhood stuff is related <laughs> to chicago point. like i lived outside of it but you know i grew up mm-hmm. during like you know that classic 90s bulls and like that old Same. school bears era so i just got like all these fun chicago memories so i've actually been dying to move back like i'm hoping that this kickstarter hits the goal that i want then i can be like cool and then go back to Chicago because that repeat kinda, the honestly repeat. it seems where like Afrofuturism and everything is really centered right now. And I want to go to Wakanda Con because that looks dope and it would be way easier if I was just close by. Yutasha, um, I know you're a creator residence at Kickstarter. Are you based out of New York now? Well, I'm in Chicago and in New York. Oh, cool. cool yes. Cool. And in between traveling to a number of places. Do you know I was in, I've been in five cities in the past three weeks? Oh, I did my not know God. that. And yes. I'm sorry. It, it's been quite <laughs> magical, actually. It's been quite transformative. I'm excited about it. Um, but it's been like, wow, you know, um, I feel like I'm time traveling, but yeah. not totally. Are you feeling kind of like a jet setter? It's just like... I'll be in Brooklyn next week, and I'll see you in Paris. And... I, I think I need to drink more tea, and then I'll feel that way. I'll be <laughs> <Okay>. able to <laughs> – tea is my default. But, you know, yes, I am a, a creative in residence, and I'm working on a new series that's called uh, A Spaceship in Brownsville. Oh, man, you just said a, a title that I think perked up every ear in this conversation. <laughs> yes. Well, it's an ode to Chicago in many ways. And again, going to that missing history piece, it starts in 1951 in Bronzeville, and it follows a reporter for the Chicago Defender who has a paranormal sci-fi column. And she f- hangs out with a group of people who explore all this phenomenon And they're quite the quirky bunch, but they're approached by someone who claims to be a millennial from the future who's giving them an opportunity to come to another time. And But what's really cool to me about the story is that it really explores sort of this weird time in history that it's before the civil rights movement really kicks off in 1955, but it's after World War II. And it's an interesting period, you know, as far as all the, the great migration dynamics taking place in Chicago, all these people from so many different places in the South, some are first generation, second, third generation at this point, and just the rich tapestry of lives and the real desire to build new futures in that time. Sometimes uh, I, I talk about a lot of people who came up from the South during that time and say that 
they were building futures in Chicago that they couldn't build in the places they were coming from. And I think some of that makes Chicago kind of a fundamentally Afrofuturist city sometimes. Uh, when you think of people going somewhere to create a new future, you know, um, Ebony Magazine could have been in Jackson, Mississippi, if it had been a, a more hospitable environment or at least a place where people could create and build and grow uh, without being challenged in so many ways. And, and challenged is an understatement. For me, it was like, wow, this is an exciting time. People are creating new futures. And you had people who were really interested in science and and the early technologies and and the modernization and you know, then you also have people kind of trying to follow, you know, they're looking at some of the folk traditions. Do you use them? Do you not use them? Um, there, But you had a lot of really educated people who just couldn't work in their fields. So one of the characters is a band director because you had all of these amazing band leaders, uh, which is kind of how you had this great jazz scene here in Chicago. But he's a band director at high school, uh, but he was a physics major. But he can't really work in that area. He can't be hired because he's a, a black person. So he, you know, is part of this group, and they talk about science all the time. Another guy is a janitor. He works at a university. He collects all these books. He reads everything. But he can't really build on that outside of kind of being in this group and exploring these ideas. So this, um, the main character, Bonnie, this reporter, she just finds all this fascinating, but she's dealing with a sense of limitation. I mean, it's 1951. She's a woman. I mean, can she even really hang out at night by herself without being called all these names and, and feeling like she's, um, you know, just being judged? And, you know, she's a woman who has some education. She speaks Spanish fluently, but it's, you know, she wants to do work in the arts, but the outlets just aren't really there. So this group of kind of unique oddball types are really exploring these ideas. And I think it just, it, I think of early 1950s, you know, that's where Sun Ra came of age in Chicago. And Sun Ra is kind of this jazz pioneer who, at some point said that he was really from Saturn and that he was here to create music to help people teleport and to uh, create harmony in the world. It's Yeah, it's kind of like part alien abduction story, part religious transformation, part, oh, I realized, you know, I'm my own myth. So he's a, a – but all of that to say when I would think about him being in the early 50s and I think about, okay, my grandparents were in their early 50s and I'm like – it's hard for me to imagine my grandparents happening to go into some club and Sun Ross performing with, you know, this big uh, Egyptian, you know, these big Egyptian Ra <laughs> headpiece on his head and doing music that's almost spaced out. And you know, just trying to place all these images in that time is difficult because we really haven't seen them. And yet these narratives were taking place. You know, the 50s, we still think this very sort of sanitized um, you know, I'm trying to think of the TV shows of the 50s, but, you know, just that whole narrative. It's, and But there are so many other unique and kind of 
quirky and, and fun things happening. So anyway, that's the, the playground for at least the beginning of the story. So uh, I, I've noticed a, a pattern um, with the three of you, and please correct me if I'm incorrect, that uh, your Afrofuturist, Afropunk work seems to be grounded also in uh, the reality of racism and classism in the United States of America. And we had touched on Black Panther earlier, which in many ways seems to kind of be this alternate universe where there is a place that was never touched by by that which is such a, a, a beautiful idea but could never really exist because globally you know the uh, colonizing just like mess freaking everything up unless it does exist of course <laughs> oh <laughs> i wouldn't know no one would tell me yeah i get where you're going because ftl y'all the uh tagline for the book and the tagline for promotions for the book was get me out of here and that yeah. was just sort of a sentiment I felt a lot of people, especially in these last two years, but quite frankly, a lot more people than that for much longer could really identify with this whole idea of, you know what, never mind, you can have it and just taking off. And it's this idea that because it's a faster than light engine, all of a sudden, all those far off planets, these super Earths, we can only barely see as specks from the Hubble telescope. Those are those are reachable. Those are within grasp. And all you have to do is, you know, point your redone VW van at it and get and keep your fingers crossed and hope you get there. And when you get there, you will be free of the restrictions that, you know, karaoke puts on you, the restrictions that come with being a person of color or a woman or all kinds of other things. And suddenly you can rebuild society in your own image. And I think that's something a lot of people fantasize about, this sort of escape of the inescapable. And that yeah. was really reflected in a lot of the stories we got for FTL, y'all. But I think, too, that the film Black Panther, it also pointed out that in some ways it implied or reminded people that there were safe spaces that have always been created throughout history or people who created what was a utopia for someone else, right? Mm -hmm. So, True. you know, even thinking about some of the people who came to Chicago earlier, the world they created that I kind of came up through, for them was a, a dream, right? And so you could say, oh, it's not perfect. There are a lot of things you have to work through. But at the end of the day, there are a lot of freedoms that I have that other people built. So that and I, in that sense, you know, it lends itself to this conversation of other kinds of Wakandas. You know, was my dance school mm -hmm. a Wakanda? Was my college experience a Wakanda? Was my I mean, there's all sorts of moments. And I think when you think that way, it's like, wow, look, people did create spaces where I could express and be and live and, and have a sense of confidence and, and step out into the world and think differently. Brandon, um, yeah. is Tycor based on um, like current Earth's trajectory or is this a, an alternate universe? I'm actually not sure. Swordsfall is a bit different from most other people's in the fact that uh, I took a more philosophical route. I don't, I don't mention Earth stuff. I don't mention racism. I don't mention any of the current stuff that we have on Earth because we're not on Earth. We're on Tycor. It's, it's simply a world that instead of it starting from a white European base, it is a world that started from a black base. Not necessarily Africa specifically or America. It's just a place where it's Earth, but everybody is dark instead of light. And I take those principles and I just bake them into every part of the world. My goal is to show you how things can be different without having to tell you that it is different. 
Like, for instance, I don't tell you that patriarchy is bad. Instead, when you meet the first king, you realize that it's a woman. And I've never made any other analogies to that. And it's just one of those simple things where you start to realize, oh, king just literally means ruler. And if it's a woman, it's a woman. It's still a king, you know? So those are the kind of things that I bake into my game. Same thing with, like, non-binary. Instead of trying to force the reader to understand how things are different from your current world, it's just is different. And then having people see that natural rhythm that, oh, it doesn't have to be an issue. It's just people just are. And I feel like it's a really powerful concept that people have to kind of understand that sometimes the problem is just letting it go and being like, oh, it just is. Okay. You know, so that's the kind of standpoint I take. It's very, in some ways, it's analogous to Earth, just in terms of like physics, science, because I'm not going to reinvent physics. But other than that, like, it's definitely not necessarily an allegory to current things. You could totally see where inspiration Mm -hmm. is in certain things, but it's very much a world in itself. And my my goal for Swordsfall has always been for it to outlive me, to where like some kid can pick up the book and get his Mm -hmm. imagination into a world that is not like ours, that is totally, utterly different, but not necessarily a middle finger to this current world. Because I feel like sometimes that's the trap we fall into, where like, you really want to put your stamp on it. And sometimes you put your stamp in the form of like an aggression and like a very punk way. And that's kind of why I like, I like to use the concept of Afropunk because instead of it necessarily being anti something, it's pro it's pro freedom. It's pro choice It's pro understanding. And I'm not to tell you about the bad people, you know, the bad people, let's talk about the cool people. Let's talk about what the world will be different if this stuff wasn't there. And I don't have to tell you because you know, we on earth. You know, so one of the biggest turnoffs for me, honestly, in a lot of fiction that stars people of color and specifically black people and sometimes women, but specifically black people of all genders is when it lacks a certain level of authenticity, when it's being written by someone who maybe thinks they understand sort of specifically the black American experience, but maybe the black global experience as well. Uh, And they do no consultation mm-hmm. they, there there's no sensitivity reading involved and they maybe they they assume they've got a good handle on it because you know they watch <laughs> bet they know the checklist they saw beloved they can do this it's fine and the story resulting is it, it rings incredibly hollow and incredibly false because it's this entire story about blackness from the perspective of suffering and exclusion and misery and it's the it's the saddest most depressing mm-hmm. thing ever and one of the reasons again i i've gotten into publishing and this sounds like an oversimplification but it's genuinely how i feel a lot of the times that sometimes i just want the black girl to get in the spaceship and go i i'm not really interested in a monologue about how difficult it is to be black right now because Black people like escapism, too. They like stories that are fantastical and ridiculous, too. And the protagonist being Black and, you know, doing something stupid but strangely charismatic or, you know, going to Jupiter and founding a colony and doing everything completely wrong and suffering the terrible consequences of it. Those are the stories I would like to read, please. I, I'm, I'm very much over and very tired of 
inauthentic stories written by people with only the most superficial understanding of me. And that superficial understanding of me has caused them to believe the only stories available to be told about people of color are stories that focus on how they are not white and how they are not men and how they are not straight or so on, so on. Like so sometimes forth. I just want a story about a regular old black dude, you know, no, no racial struggle, yeah. no weird stuff. He's just a character who's just black. He just looks like me. And we can just have yeah. a romp and, yeah. you know, and, and have a real escapism. Gets in the spaceship like... and goes. Get in the spaceship and go is definitely the title of this episode, guys. <laughs> One of the things that uh, that comes up, too, a lot is this is sort of a mindset I'm seeing a lot more people interrogate. And that's really that's a huge relief. That's very refreshing. But something that used to be a lot more common was you needed a reason to not be like white, straight, cis, mm-hmm. hetero man. You needed like if a character showed up in an ensemble cast and it was a black girl well, but why is she a black girl? And it's like, she going to teach us something? The thing people are kind of, yeah, exactly. Is she here to teach me an important lesson about blackness mm-hmm. or girlness? Like, no, she's, she just exists in that body. Why are you a white man? Mm-hmm. You know, you don't need a reason and neither does she. I feel like people forget that straight, white, cis man is a very narrow part of the population that has a very unfair majority on all of our media. Yes. That they don't even want, honestly. No, like, like I hang, I, I have a lot of those friends, and like the amount of times that you see how uncomfortable they are with the power that they don't know what to do with, you know, like, like, I like that's something I had to think about was like, what, what does it have to be like to accidentally be born into the power majority, you know, like you never asked for that, you just, you just showed up, you know, and here you are, and you're like the point of assault, and some of these guys are like, I don't want to get me out the way. Please, source fault. Yes, look at this stuff. And I've I've watched them be like, don't focus on us. We don't even know what we want. You know, it's never um, an individual's fault that hierarchy exists, but it is also, but it is always somebody's responsibility to decide to confront and be responsible for the way that that causes them to interact. I totally agree with exactly. you. Absolutely. And I also think that this sort of. Like one of the things that people are also recognizing now, like less on the sort of fiction and entertainment angle and the media angle and more on sort of like the history angle, the way that most public education is set up in this country is if you sort of go with the flow and only read the assignments and only do the homework and you don't educate yourself beyond what is specifically taught to you in a classroom and you graduate and you go about your life, you could spend years convinced like white people are the only people that did everything that every cowboy was white every arctic explorer was white every revolutionary soldier was white every chemist was white because you are not shown anything otherwise and that is sort of the root i think of this reactionary impulse that a a very vocal i should say very vocal minority of people have where they start suddenly crabbing about well that's not realistic well that's not how it was though and it's like that is a betrayal of your lack of education that's that's not you standing by reality that's demonstrative of how little you actually know and to add to that like one thing that doesn't get brought up a lot is is especially there's more benefits and reasons for for white people to kind of go along with the status quo than mm-hmm. to go against it like the yep. system very much has set it up to where it's very clear that there are negative things for going off road yeah get, 
going off script, you will be penalized. You can do it, you know? So in a sense, like, they're kind of trapped in it. So it's this weird thing where, like, you, I, I've come to understand why the magic Negro stereotype exists so much. Because it confounded me when oh, you're yeah. young, because you, like, you kind of, I, I can't speak for everybody, but I feel like I came this, like, weird circle where when I was a kid, I thought it was great. And then I got older and was like, oh, well, this is awkward. And I got, and now I'm at the point now where I'm kind of like, oh, I get it. It's because you all are trapped into a system where you kind of don't really know what's out there. You've been forced into a box and you get zapped every time you get out of it. So you, you almost have to have <laughs> the magic Negro come by and be like, hey, there's something outside of the box. And it's this weird catch 22 where it can't be on us, but it almost is on us because we're outside of the box. Like, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and it's actually reminiscent to, I'm, I should preface, I'm old. And when I was growing up, the original She-Ra mm -hmm. was on TV. And like the original My Little Pony and all these old, old, old 80s cartoons that were oh focus gosh. grouped to death. We're and... all like the same age, Spike, but please continue. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's a relief. Oh God. I'm so used to being nope. the oldest in the room. But um, basically... Every one of these casts that I would watch as a child, they would always have sort of the one brown person yeah. and the or, or the one black person. It sort of depended. And I would watch these and without being capable of articulating why, I would just like not like the one mm -hmm. black cast member in all these ensemble shows. And as I got older, I came to realize that and of course, I would feel bad about not liking them, but I wouldn't. And as I got older... And sort of more aware of my surroundings and, you know, my age, my age entered the double digits. I, I came to understand the deal was that they weren't allowed to be people. They weren't allowed to have any sort of personality because since this show made for made room for one black person and one black person only, that black person ceased to be a character and became a representative of their race. Or a plot device. Yeah, or a plot device. And anything they did now wasn't, you know, Bill doing this thing. It was black people doing this thing. So as a result, they had the least lines and they were the most sort of faultless, risk-averse, boring characters on the show. They They weren't allowed the sort of breadth of characterization that all the other white characters on the show had where one got to be the funny one and one got to be the angry one and one got to be the silly one black was their personality trait and their personality trait was boring and why it's so important for me that sort of afrofuturism takes hold and there are more black people and people of color and queer people and all kinds of people that are outside what humanity at least in you know you the u.s sort of interprets wrongly as default human which is white cis male um is so there are opportunities there to tell stories where the person who is the marginalized person is not obligated to be the paragon is not obligated to be this perfect creature because instances of them in media are so rare that people will automatically assume this isn't bill this is your statement on black people as a whole it's a weird numbers game too, like yeah. when you think about it, because like if you only have one black character per show, there's no way you can even explore enough mm -hmm. enough different types of characters. Like if you think about 
how many shows are out there and how many characters we actually still remember. It it takes a lot of characters to whittle down to the ones that really are good. And if you're going one out of per every other show, you're never going to get it. You know, you're never going to see it. You know, I think I, I have to thank my parents because they were so intentional in creating an environment where I saw a lot of black, media representations um, coming up, you know, through the different times. And and so when I would see misrepresentation or when I would see all white shows and maybe the one black person who kind of comes in and out, I was very conscious that someone had created this story and it put them in there and that this was not supposed to be really representative of anything real. Well, and I, I think some of it had to do with, I, I got these, like, books, these child craft books, and they were really subversive um, And <laughs> in that they, there was one that was just about history, and there was a page where it had, like, a little drawing, and this is for kids, of course, right? And so they're talking about all the people who came to America before Columbus. And in the picture, there's a continent of North and South America. The timekeeper is Native American. And then they have a bunch of people in a race. Of course, Columbus is at the end. There's a Viking in the race. There's um, someone from, I think, China who's in the race. And then there was an African man who was at the front. And they were referring to, like, a lot of the headstones that are in parts of South America um, that they attribute to some of their earlier societies and said that those are people, you know, coming from the African continent. And... Yeah, maybe I was like eight years old when I saw this. And I was like, whoa, I never heard this before. That means there's more. And I became like this little investigator wanting to find, all, read as much history as possible. Uh, I was the kid who would, you'd have like the assigned reading in the history book. And I was like, I'm reading the whole history book. Okay, now I'm going to the library. Now I'm going to read, you know, and I was reading all these biographies and you know, at least my family was really into like watching these documentaries, the PBS specials and, you know, Roots. Roots was like, I think I saw Roots every year of my life starting at three. I probably saw it in the womb and didn't realize it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I had like a relationship with what were really difficult concepts as a child, not knowing how deep they were. But if nothing, at the very least, I really did understand, OK, there are things that aren't being told and it's not my fault. Why would it be? I need to find these stories. You know, the world I would see on the news was not the world I lived in. So it was very clear that these are misrepresentations. And at some point when I said, oh, I'm going to be a journalist, I said, I'm going to write the stories that people aren't writing. And that's how I wound up writing sci-fi and Afrofuturism in some ways. And I, I just think that I, I appreciate that because a lot of times when I'm talking about these subject matters and talking about sci-fi and about possibility and things you could do, I realize how isolated some of the environments were for different people um, and that they would look at certain shows and not see themselves. And it had a, a, the dire impact it had wasn't the same impact it had on me because of all these buffers and the fact that I was a, a history detective at 10, right? Um, but just the fact that I was a history detective is a response to a sense of absence. 
and feeling some sort of agency or empowerment around that. And I think that's why, to some extent, we're all storytellers. And but want to share these very human stories to show aspects of the worlds that we lived in and fantasies that we thought about, but just have them enriched with, a, you know, a broader cultural palette. I, I was also my parents are also like Natasha, but I had a very different reaction. Like I distinctly remember reading Roots and being horrified and for me, like at that time as a kid, I lived in the suburbs. So I had this very much stranger in the mist feeling. Like it, it, it very much made me feel smaller than bigger. And I don't know if I'm the only person that had that. But for me, it was one of those. It was just like, a, okay, then who do I, who do I trust? And if this is, if this is how it is, and, and this is what it's like on TV, then, then what do I do when I go to school? Are any of these kids my friends? I'm the only black kid in my school. Can I talk to anybody? Can I not talk to anybody? So some, and and I think that's why for me, for Sourcefall, it's very much more of a gentler transition than like a shout, just because for me, I just remember as a kid having that feeling of like understanding it, but instead of it making me feel like, okay, I understand it more, it kind of made me a little paranoid because I was in a place where it was majority white, where I already stuck out. And now I understand why I stick out. And then you start to understand what the dog whistles mean, but you realize you're the only person around and it's all dogs and it's just <laughs> not a fun feeling, you know? Oh, so that's, it, that's kind of, what, you know, so wound. this is, this is quite a, quite a contrast for it's like, it's interesting listening to everybody's sort of childhood experiences because I was raised by black Republicans and sort of explaining black republicanism to people has been a really interesting experience and it actually makes a lot of pieces fall into place for them and i'm talking like mostly mostly white people and in case folks listening to this are not aware when i say black republican i don't mean like the lunatics at trump rallies i'm talking about what is actually still an extremely popular philosophy that a lot of older and honestly plenty of younger uh, black americans hold and this was something that my father and my mother and their group of friends very strongly believed and sort of classic black conservatism is white people will not only not help you, they will go out of their power to make sure you do not prosper and you do not succeed. So every situation you go into you need to assume until informed otherwise by experience that you're doing that on your own if most of the people you're interacting with are going to be white. And not only will they try to stop you, but the things you do manage will go unrecognized until it's literally more difficult to ignore them than it is to acknowledge them. And since you're a girl, and this is like them talking to me specifically as a child, since you're a girl, you're going to have to work twice as hard because you have two strikes. You're black and you're a girl. There are things white people are going to get that you're not going to get. If if a white person needs special help from the government, they're way more likely to get it than you. Your little white friends, and that was a term my parents were very fond of, your little white friends can go and smoke pot and hotbox like their dad's car in the cul-de-sac in high school. But if you do that, you're going to jail. They'll get a warning and you'll go to jail. So not only does your behavior need to be impeccable, but 
you need to work harder than everybody else. And that is very much classic black conservatism. Do they and have the same a, parents? Because the <laughs> there's, there's a very strong sort of, um, there's a strong well, streak. there's some of, Democrats who feel that way yeah, too. Who have a respectability politics. There's a very strong streak of respectability politics in it too, which is sort of, uh, if you speak properly and wear a tie and make sure that your hair is always in sort of that, if you're a girl, if you make sure your hair is always in that Condi Rice cut, you know, like relaxed bob, it's like that is not just sort of a way to make sure that you are respected, but it's almost armor. It, it, it makes sure that white people have less ammo to attack you with, which is why my parents were horrified when I went to college and got dreads. Yep. Same here. Uh, <laughs> and tattooed. But yeah, that's that's sort of like that 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 informs sort of a lot of sort of the undercurrent. When I see people on Fox News who are black people who are doing like a lot of finger waggy kind of stuff, um, it's always very interesting to me because they're black conservatives who seem to be telling half the story for the benefit of the white audience. They leave the part out where white people are terrible and will actively sabotage you because they're bad racist people but they they definitely stress the bootstrap element and the work hard element because you know they're playing to the audience do you feel like that that viewpoint is born out of a somewhat like like this is the way the world is and it's this it's it's a reaction to 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 racism or is this a is this off the the wall sort of thing this is a reaction to racism and i can absolutely understand why my parents believed in it it's it's a total line reaction it's absolute and it's also it's self-defense and it's it's sort of this understanding that the system is pitted against you and you don't get three strikes you get one strike and you're out if you're black and in america and not so much fighting to change that although they do want change they just understand that that change will come at a snail's pace and it'll benefit their children, not them. And it's a lot of working with what they have and acknowledging that things are just going to be harder and denying that things are going to be harder will do you no favors. And that is something that they, they lived by. And that's when, you know, that Bill Cosby pound cake speech thing happened. I, I mean, that sounded like my dad. <laughs> do you, and would he, you mind actually just in case there's people listening who don't know what that is um could you give a years and years and years ago bill cosby gave what is called the pound cake speech um it it's something you can find transcripts of online i'm pretty sure it's on wikipedia but in a nutshell he was just sort of going on this weird tear while he was at the podium in a public address and he was addressing I, I want to say the NAACP or the Caucus of Black Democrats. He was addressing. I think it was the caucus. Yeah. And he was addressing a room full of other black people because that's where black conservatism really thrives in a room full of other black people. <laughs> and um, he was talking about how, oh, black men these days, they don't speak properly and they don't dress properly and they're shooting each other in the street over a piece of pound cake. And that's why white people don't respect you. It's because you give them so much ammo to use against you. And if you want to get anywhere in this world, you'll learn to speak properly and tie a tie and make a resume and this, that, and the other. Just a lot of respectability politics stuff that things would be better if you learned to say please and thank you stuff. And so much of that was, you know, problematic. Oh, but yeah. I think what it speaks to is people 
trying to figure out ways to navigate unusual circumstances. And I think the exciting thing about talking about Afrofuturism is that you can look at how the imagination has been used to transform people's circumstances. You know, how if someone had been enslaved to dream of being free, um, created a platform for others and in others created a sense of agency for themselves. Or even if it was just someone creating a space where they're in a, a troubled neighborhood and they're trying to imagine what it would be like to go into space, right? Or if they want to go to college and aren't sure how and they imagine ways to come up with money to be able to go. I mean, there's the practical and there's what can seem very absurd. But I think at the end of the day, the imagination has saved lives. The imagination has, you know, a lot of the stories that excite us the most have helped us to feel good about ourselves, have given us a new relationship to our own humanity and have helped us to understand just our broader relationships with the world. I mean, to think about being in space or, you know, something like the Rayleigh universe and just to see a character and on a former earth colony, two centuries into the future, that pushes boundaries, you know, that pushes uh, elements of, of identity without you having to do make statements about identity per se. For the reader, it just helps people to explore other avenues so that they can grow and thrive. I think the biggest thing that gets a little bit kind of lost in a world that's about money is we find ourselves in our imagination, you know? Like, how often have people talked about they realize that the person that they were going to marry, you know, in that moment in your head, when you look at them and your brain imagines something and you're like, Ooh, yeah, I want a house and a car and a dog and a mortgage with you, you know? And, and I can't tell you, like, I'm a cis man, but I've had a lot of, of, of trans and LGBT friends over the years. And that's what's helped me understand their life. And I always hear about for them, they realized that they wanted something different when they imagined themselves with someone from the opposite sex, you know, and, and that realization of, oh, that, that imagined that, that, that thought sounds really good. And if you, not everybody has the ability to just come up with that in their mind. Some people have to read a book and have that put in their mind and then go, oh, that feels kind of nice. I never thought about what it would be like if I was with the opposite sex, but I'm reading about this character and the way they talk about them, that makes a lot of sense to me, you know? So having those things in those characters is part of the way that people really find themselves. And so making sure that you also have different messages so that people have that ability to, in a sense, like, choose what, what, what their imagination is going to have, you know? We, uh, we've spoken a lot about um, choosing bits and pieces of things, choosing uh, history, um, people omitting history, um, just like everything being very piecemeal. Um, and I'd love to know, um, because we are all creating within a world that is plagued with hierarchy, um, how do you choose what to put in your science fiction and your fantasy. Um, uh, one, uh, one thing I've been watching a lot lately is this awful Netflix show, uh, Love of Death Robots. Oh, I got cyberpunk feelings up the wazoo. Oh, my God. So I, I wish I could like it. And one of the reasons why I can't is because it it it, it is as though 
these writers specifically, because the animation mm-hmm. is absolutely perfection, but the, it is as though the writers are like, you know what would really make this sci-fi world great is lots of misogyny. I'm just going to yeah. spread it all over the place like mayonnaise. Yeah. That yeah. is not I, that is not a choice I personally would make. Um, I personally would add misogyny into an imagined universe to talk about that misogyny, to not just say that this is a flavor of the world that I've created, but I've decided that we all hate women too. Um, how, how do you um, – because, again, you're all creating um, – surrounded by all this garbage – um, how do you choose what parts of the garbage uh, you want to talk about in your fiction and which parts are just like, you know what? This is an imagined, beautiful outer space world and I don't even, I don't want that in here. Uh, I was just saying the stuff I have opinions about is the stuff that ends up getting talked about. And I'm a huge, huge fan of allegory and metaphor and not directly like I'm, I'm there's a I call it the schoolhouse rock approach where you put a frame about the thing you're talking about and it has those footlights on it like a stage and you're like this is what we're going to discuss and you know that's that's one way of approaching it and don't get me wrong a lot of people have a very hard time understanding you know the the basic dynamics of fiction sometimes which is why people come out of fight club talking about how they should start fight clubs and people watch <laughs> Mad Men and they think Don Draper is the is the good guy. Just and, you whoosh. Know, the, <laughs> yeah, that sound you hear is the point just zipping past your head. Like a good example is a story I'm kind of developing now and it's one of those stories I've had for ages and I want to do something with it, but I'm still trying to figure out how and what. And it is a sci-fi story and it stars, two, well, it it's an ensemble cast. It has two aliens on it who currently are passing for human genetically modified male twins when they're actually none of the above. It's just because of convergent evolution and the level of genetic manipulation that's become commonplace. You could believe that that's what they are. And they're from what is sort of archaically referred to as a newly discovered sapient race. It's, It's on a planet that sort of the pseudopods, the amoebic pseudopods of air quotes civilization has just discovered is in the process of enveloping and their biggest problem their most perennial recurring problem is they are not actually recognized as sapient everyone who talks to them looks at them understands that these are these are thinking reasoning creatures but at the same time they haven't done the paperwork so they're not as they're not recognized as part of the the sapient races of the galaxy and entitled to all the rights therein so there's kind of this race to the finish right now with the people who are trying to claim this planet and the people who have always who who developed who evolved on this planet and right now they're they're essentially they have the same level of regard as cattle or deer or something and they they can be removed with the same level of disregard and at the same time, though, there are advantages to being not considered sapient because you don't expect a dog to follow the law. So they're kind of stuck in this middle space where they're weighing the advantages of being recognized as sapient because that comes with its own whole new sort of barrel of problems and sort of enjoying non-sapient status because you know you don't send dogs to jail <laughs> you don't expect dogs to pay taxes you don't this expect is so dogs deep to do space a lot of nine. Oh my yeah. god <laughs> yeah and like that kind of it touches on a lot of things it touches on sort of the 
Renaissance or sort of Enlightenment age sort of beginnings of race science. It touches on colonization. It touches on, you know, the rights of people who are either stateless or refugees, that sort of thing. And it's all sort of done in this really complicated metaphor. And I, I, I really want to tell stories with this setup because I think there's a lot of room for not just simultaneously a lot of, you know, opinionating, but also a lot of humor and a lot of sort of just fun opportunities to explore that space. But at the same time, you know, I know there are people who are not going to be able to connect dot A and dot B with that dotted line and be like, oh, okay, I see where this is coming from. There are people who, if this were, for example, a video game, they'd finish playing it and they'd be all like, that was a fun video game about aliens and then wander off. Thank you all so much for being on the show. I'm honestly so grateful that I could get all of you um, on a call at the same time. Um, I've learned so much. I've taken like a million pages of notes. Um, let's go through real quick and everybody just say your name and one place uh, where people can find you on the internet. And Brandon, let's start with you because you're the one with a live Kickstarter project right now. Yeah, you can um, find me on Kickstarter. Welcome to Tycor, a Swordsfall setting and art book. Uh, you can also find me at Twitter at Swordsfall1. I'm super active on that. I'm C. Spike Trotman, and you can find me on Twitter at Iron underscore Spike. I talk a lot about comic books, video games, politics, and porno, so be prepared for oh, that. Yeah, wonderful. Yatasha. <laughs> you can go to YatashaWomack.com. Uh, we're launching the Spaceship and Bronzeville campaign in May and with mouse books, so you'll see info there. You can also go to Twitter at Yatasha Womack and Instagram at Y. Soul Star, Y-S-O-L-S-T-A-R. Thank you so much to all of our guests today. This has been incredible. This is like everything that I had dreamed. Uh, so if you want to learn more about Afropunk, um, Afrofuturism, you should follow everybody on Twitter and also do some Googling on your own dang time. Thank you to Alex Cox, our podfather and audio daddy, for doing such an amazing job coordinating uh, the incredible amount of tech we needed for this episode. Thank you to Matt Connolly for our theme song. Thank you to everybody for listening. And if you are looking to start a Kickstarter project and you want to get in touch and maybe be on the show, email me, trin at kickstarter.com. We will see everybody at PAX East later this week.